All right, and just like that, we are back again with another episode of the Mind the Growth podcast. As always, I'm Chris Kinghorn. And I'm Eric Hoffman. Eric, we've got a very special guest today. We've got uh, Mr. Sir Michael Young in the house. Michael, <laughs> thanks for joining us. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Really looking forward to this, and congrats on the the podcast and the early success that you guys are having. Thank awesome, you. Awesome. We are, so, uh, we are excited as well, too. I am I'm a car fan, but I am not the car fan of the channel. So I feel like you and Eric are it's probably, I might be pushed to the side for most of this. So I wanted to get us started and uh, we'll get kicked off. But Michael, for, for those of uh, for those of the viewers who are not as familiar with you, can you kind of just maybe give us a three to five minute history of who you are? You've got a very impressive story at a at, you know fairly young age. So I want to kind of give them some context of who you are. Well, I appreciate that, Chris. Don't know how impressive, but nonetheless, I really appreciate you guys having me on. And as you guys mentioned, I'm Michael Young. I'm born and raised here in Phoenix area and uh, just been really an entrepreneur from an early age. I got my start in the nonprofit sector. Back in middle school, I founded a nonprofit that raised money for the animal assisted therapy program at Phoenix Children's Hospital. That was kind of my foray into entrepreneurship, running a nonprofit, a foundation, and really segued that post-college into the for-profit sector and was involved in a couple tech startups that were venture-backed companies. Had a little bit of success, not as much as I would have hoped, but nonetheless really got my feet wet in that and, and was able to understand the ups and downs of starting a company from really the inception of yeah, just concept, bringing a product to market, scaling it and uh, in exiting and, and moving on to other ventures. And lo and behold, with the pandemic and some things that were going on in my previous company, I had some extra time on my hands and was able to turn my passion for cars in the collector car industry, something I'd been around, at least in a peripheral sense, into a business and have been yeah, on a more full-time basis, focused on buying, selling really rare, collectible, manual transmission cars and uh, am in the process of finalizing a uh, physical location for our dealership here in Scottsdale. That should be up and running here in the, the coming months and just excited for the future growth, especially within an industry that I'm yeah so passionate about. It's special to be able to do something that you really enjoy, love each and every day. Fascinating. So cars, give, a, give us a history of cars. Were you always an enthusiast? Did you always have you know, your eyes on cars as, an, uh, as a kid? Uh, where did the manual transmission love come into play? Give us that history. Absolutely. So some of my most fond early memories are really going for Saturday drives with my dad and whatever sports car he had at the time. Start out with De Tomaso Pantera. So back in the day, he had a 1972 yellow, all original, really kind of a time capsule De Tomaso Pantera. That was the fifth Pantera that he had. He was just avid about the brand. It was yeah, an early 1970s Italian built car with a Ford 351 Cleveland motor in it, uh, five speed ZF transmission manual uh and just a really kind of cool don't want to say total bargain but it was a relative bargain compared to the lamborghinis ferraris of the day really fun driver's cars and so me at you know one two three years old we would go for our weekly saturday drives listen to led zeppelin and i was just hooked on 
this car and the experience of riding around and something that made all kinds of noise, yeah, listening to music with my dad, it was really special to me. And in 97, we sold that car at Barrett Jackson. And I truly, yeah, I'm four years old at this point, didn't have an understanding of the fact that cars going away, not going to have it anymore. I was just excited for yeah, the car to go on stage. I remember this was the days where you actually drove up on stage with your car rather than, yeah, they now have people who are driving all the vehicles up on stage and you're more removed from the experience, I would say. But at this point, we drive up on stage. I'm all excited. I've been helping detail the car. And at the end, when it did sell at Met Reserve, they offered reserves back in those times drive off the stage and I just remember being in tears just devastated now understanding that that car was actually going away but it went to I don't know if you guys know Yankee Candle Company but the founder of that company was a huge car collector and had a museum he was on site he was the one that actually purchased the car for the museum um, and that car ended up going back to Massachusetts. He invited us out there because he saw me at a little you know, young age detailing this car prior to auction. And about a year later, we went to the museum. He gave us the tour, opened the car up, and it was just a really special experience. And that further kind of introduced me to the collector car community and just how open and generous people were that this guy who bought this car from us, you know, would invite us to see his collection, see the museum and you know, take us around. So that got me hooked. And my dad had a few other cars over the years, most of which were manual transmission cars. So I just remembered shifting gears from the passenger seat for him. Obviously he'd operate the clutch, but he would let me shift. And it got me so hooked on it. And as I grew up, I started racing go-karts a little bit, never that good at it, but yeah, got the experience of driving cars and did some track days. Fastest driver out there, and that's okay. But with a manual transmission, you just have such a raw, visceral experience that really connects you to a car. And a drive, whether it's going to the grocery store or going for yeah, a lap around Laguna Seca, it doesn't matter because it's a real event and it gives a sense of I'm race car driver. doesn't matter if you are or not. It's something that you just can't replicate with paddle shifted cars. They all at low speeds, yeah, feel very similar to driving. Yeah. A, your, your Prius on the road. I, I don't want to go to that extreme, but yeah, there's some element of truth to it. It's, it's not the same experience where yeah, if I get on, yeah, a manual transmission just coming up yeah, down the street and coming up to a stoplight, I can still get on it and heel toe down the gears and really feel an element of connection to the car. And the collector car community has really gravitated towards manual transmission cars because most manufacturers really outside of Porsche, they've stopped producing manual transmission cars. Yes, BMW can still get them, but Ferrari, Lamborghini, yeah, Mercedes, Audi, anything really cool and enjoyable for the most part, they're just focused on lap time numbers around the Nürburgring. And that element of joy for the average collector is just not the same when you compare paddle shifted cars to manual transmission. Yes, racing environment, your dual clutch or single clutch paddle shifted car, depending on what 
product has been put in there, it, it is faster, but it's not more enjoyable, at least in my opinion. And that's why Porsche will always be the best car manufacturer in the world, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but that's a side note. So it's, so to level set a little bit for you, Michael, I'll, I'll give you some brief history of myself. And we have you know similar backgrounds in regards to cars and our love for them. So when I was two, three, four years old, my dad had a 300ZX twin, twin turbo mm -hmm. Nissan. And he loved that. That was like his baby. And I would shift for him. It was a manual transmission, five speed. And I loved it. And so growing up, I would... I would gravitate towards those racing games at arcades that had the gearbox. If you remember the, the gated shifters and anytime we'd go to a car show, especially in Phoenix, which forever uh, around Thanksgiving time every year, there was the Phoenix yep. auto show at the civic center, which I went to every year. Me too. And, and I would search out the entire auto show just for the manual transmission cars and just sit in there for probably way too long and just shift the the hell out of the gearbox and probably ruin it. <laughs> but I was obsessed pretty early on. And then my older brother, he's two years older than me. So he got his license and his permit, you know, again, two years before I could drive. And he wound up buying a, uh, a beat up uh, Toyota 4Runner. That was, I think it was a four speed manual. And I convinced him when I was 13 and a half, 14 years old to let me drive it. And it was the first time I, I drove an actual manual car, didn't stall once, which I was very proud of. <laughs> and that, that was my foray into it. So I've always uh, had a love for it. And I also have a, a controversial maybe view of manual transmissions. I have a strong belief that everybody who is in the 16 year old age group should be required to learn to drive a manual car because the roads would be much safer mm -hmm. if people actually understood how to drive a manual car and got used to driving under those circumstances. Because when you're driving a manual car, you can't text, mm -hmm. you can't take a phone call, you're just one with the car, and that's that. So that that's my personal view, and I will always lobby for manufacturers to keep a manual transmission around. But um, that, that was kind of my foray into it. <laughs> and so I wanted to give the audience, I don't think I've told that story on this podcast before, and we can get into some of my cars too, cause I want to hear about yours, but, uh, yeah, interesting that we had some similar backgrounds in, in a similar area. Absolutely. We were kindred spirits to say the least, by the way, I like <laughs> those 300 ZXs. Those are cool cars with the five speed They're, and the, uh, the twin turbos. There's, totally. There's been some that have been bringing pretty strong numbers. I'm not a JDM expert by any stretch, but those are cool cars. It was the little brother of the Supra at mm -hmm. the time. Everyone wanted the Supra. The uh, the JLZ motor mm -hmm. was was pretty pretty popular, but the 300 ZX I I happen to like and love. So yeah. So Mike Michael, before we go down the the list of cars, because I know Eric's going to want to talk about his GT4 and. We'll probably have to talk about the Nissan GTR and a few others. I know that one's not manual, but hey, we'll give you. A we'll, pass we'll get there. there. Um, <laughs> exactly. Can you? Um, so before we, because I would love to do kind of a deep dive and really nerd out about specific cars. But before we do that, can we touch on electric cars and what your thoughts are on electric cars? Yeah, that's a great question, Chris. And you know, I'll start this by saying I'm truly not an expert in terms of electrified vehicles. Um, do I think that there's 
absolutely a place in the market and are they the future 1000% think we'll see yeah every single manufacturer producing predominantly electric cars just yeah for a variety of reasons from the environmental factors to the ownership cost in terms of charging i do think that there's still some things that need to be sorted out and again not an expert here but in terms of the manufacturing process yes when you get the car into the end user, it is better for the environment, but there are a lot of processes in terms of battery pack manufacturing and still the overall manufacturing of the cars that I think we still need to get greener in order to accomplish the overall goal of really reducing you know, carbon emissions, et cetera, looking at the whole life cycle of the car from birth to death, essentially when the car is yeah, in a scrap yard, that's important. So I think we're still getting there, but the advancement has been just mind boggling. And yeah, whether it's looking at uh, Rimash, uh, the Croatian car company that yeah has taken the high end super car seen by storm uh, to you know, what's being done on the entry level, whether it's you know, Kia or whomever getting into the space with fully electric vehicles. It's cool to see. Now, I'm biased and probably too much of a polluter in the fact that I'm not yet one to give up my gas-powered car even as a daily, but I'm sure at some point I will be driving an electric car and it is the future. I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes, and I just wish they could put a manual transmission in an electric car and put pump some fake uh, <laughs> motor noises in there. I, I don't think you'll have to worry about that. I, I personally don't think gas-powered cars are going away anytime soon. I, maybe, maybe my head's in the sand a little bit on that, but yeah, I mean, I agree. Electric cars, there's clearly a place for them, but at the same time, Lithium ion batteries are difficult to manufacture. They can also, to a degree, be considered pollutants at some point. They take forever to break down. And the raw materials are going to become really hard to come by when you produce millions of cars every year. So we'll see what happens there. And frankly, I, I don't know if you've been in or driven or owned a Tesla. Mm -hmm. I think they're garbage cars. Sorry, Elon, I like you, but the actual feel of a Tesla, my mom had an X100D, so it was fast as hell, yeah, but it was fast in a way that like makes you mm -hmm. sick, like in a, a, uh, a manufactured fast, that's the best way I can describe it, and just the materials, the way it was put together, the, you know, the panel gaps, which us... Uh, us petrol heads like to talk about it just it's not a great car for what what they charge that being said uh i'd love to own a remock maybe one day that they seem pretty cool <laughs> uh but yeah i'll always probably hold on with a death grip to my uh my porsches of the world i so. i'm with you i second those sentiments entirely yeah i mean for hundred to $150,000 the fit and finish and again sorry elon but it leaves a lot to be desired and it's just a roller coaster fast. It, it is almost artificial. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So getting into, so it's called young motor cars. Is that yes, correct? it is. Gotcha. So I I've been to your page. I've seen some, some beautiful Porsches, especially the GTs. 
give us a, a rundown. And I, I have one thing after you give us a rundown <laughs> that I'll comment on, especially on your Instagram and you may know, but uh, I love Porsche GTs. In fact, I was talking to my younger brother today because I think you've sold cars on bring a trailer, which is one of my favorite sites to peruse every day. Um, there is a 918 mm-hmm. listed for sale yep, today. That, that sock, I believe yeah. went over 2 million. Yep. And I was talking to my younger brother because we're both obsessed and we were trying to decide whether we would choose a mint Carrera GT over a mint 918. And I was having a really difficult time deciding. I think I would still go with the GT. It's just an icon manual. That V10 is just, there's nothing like it. Um, But the 918 is also a gorgeous car. So Let's start there. 918 or Carrera GT and tell us about the cars in your stable right now. Absolutely. So in terms of 918 Carrera GT, I don't have a whole lot of seat time in in a 918. So I'll I'll throw that out there. Um, It's not a car that I've focused on personally or professionally. So the answer is easy. It's a Carrera GT all day and (laughs) twice on Sunday. I hate to put it this way, but I'm 29 right now, and you know, having owned Carrera GTs and, and gotten some extensive button seat time and, and sold them, I can safely say that there might not be a better car that I drive in my entire lifetime, which on, on one hand is kind of sad reaching you know the, the ultimate peak at uh, the peak. You know, before you're 30 in terms of what you may consider to be the greatest driver's car of all time. But on the other hand, yeah, it just makes you all the more appreciative of being able to have yeah, experienced a car like that. Um, you know, the Carrera GT, yes, they made about 300 more, a little bit more than that, than the 918. So the 918 technically is a rarer car. But we get into paddle shifters, and it's got a V8 that sounds good on the 918 uh, with the you know, electric assist from the, the electric motors as well. And yeah, I have no qualms. Yeah, 918 is a great car, great lines. I'll probably be a little controversial here and say out of the Holy Trinity, 918 P1 and LaFerrari, I actually prefer the 918, uh, you know, having some experience with all three cars. I just like the lines of it. I, I think it's going to age the best. Um, but with that being said, the Carrera GT is so raw, so visceral, maybe one of the greatest sounding cars of all time. Uh, I throw the F50 up there, the, yeah, um, LFA, uh, the CGT, Carrera GT, I'd kind of put all those up there in terms of production cars. If we go to really, really modern now, the uh, T50 uh, from Gordon Murray that Cosworth yeah the, the, you. you know the Cosworth V12 <laughs> that's in there that's you know, just revving to the moon the Apollo IE and then I'd throw the the new Valkyrie and Valkyrie Spider up there as just kind of the best sounding production cars of all time but that that career GT it is just so unbelievable the center uh, shift position mounted up high right next to the steering wheel is I think ingenious you're just so close moving from the shifter with the balsa wood, which I prefer over the, the carbon option. That's just uh, just my take in terms of my preference. I I love it. <laughs> Chris, you had something? I do, I do. I um I'm a I'm a big nine eighteen guy, so uh 
I, I feel like there's two votes for the GT and one for the 918. So uh, call yeah. it almost a draw. Michael, so you had mentioned, um, okay, showroom is coming soon. What are what are kind of some of the goals with with the, the business as a whole? Is it going to be more so of kind of a select clientele basis? Uh, do you have an idea on, you know, what you want the showroom to look like? Is it private showings? What's kind of, what's the business model? Yeah, absolutely. Like so I think for young motor cars, really our focus is quality over quantity. I started to buy some cars just from a personal standpoint. And that's what gave me a little bit of an experience in terms of the do's and don'ts of the business, you know, prior to pursuing this on some professional level. And what I saw is that even when you're going to some of these top tier, very niche dealerships, there's still some of the used car tactics that are played, whether, you know, you're talking about cars that are $100,000 or cars that are million dollars plus. And that was a big turnoff and something that really bothered me in terms of my own personal experiences, you know, having to fight with dealers for simple things and dealing with misrepresentation of cars, that's where I said, okay, there's still a big opportunity to do this right. Focus on the quality of the cars, really only represent cars that you would buy yourself for your own personal collection and bring awesome cars to market and gain the trust of both you know, people that are selling you the cars and people that are buying you the cars or consigning with you. So it is going to be appointment only. We're operating on a very you know, exclusive model we're not focused on the quantity that we're doing, but really the quality of the cars that we bring to market. Uh, showroom's going to be mostly, yeah, space for cars. We're not focused on a whole lot other than the cars. It'll be, you know, very nice and inviting and, you know, place that you're comfortable buying a $100,000 to multi-million dollar car. But it's about the cars at the end of the day and about the relationships with the customers. So that's where our focus lies. We're not trying to get into things that we don't understand. And you know, our bread and butter is going to be the Porsches and Ferraris and the manual transmission cars that are modern classics. I want to make sure that when I represent a car, something that I understand, I can safely say, hey, you're getting a great automobile. Here is what it is. And there are no surprises or hidden stories. So with that model... I, like I was saying earlier, I'm mm -hmm. on bring a trailer probably most days and I'm watching what cars are going for. There's in business there, what I find difficult with this market, because I've considered, you know, doing something similar to what you're proposing. And by the way, before I even get into it, are you familiar with a company called DDW Partners? Yeah, they're up in, in, in North Scottsdale. I don't know the guys, but they do yeah. an annual car show as well for for charity and for a great cause and yeah. been to that and uh know they do some some really good cars and uh yeah more of the the niche market as well yeah so they're definitely doing mm -hmm. something similar to what you described and uh i've had one or two brief conversations with the owner but um the reason i ask is because what i've always been curious about it's very hard to predict what people will pay for mm. high-end cars, especially these classic cars like Carrera GTs. Um, so how do you, uh, how do you project out what you should be buying these for versus what you could potentially sell them for? Because we're talking, you know, millions of dollars to even just acquire one of these. So how have you been thinking through that process with uh, a market that can be unpredictable? Yes. Well, then also consignment is a component of that no, as well, yeah, too. Sorry no, to cut great, you off. I just great wanted to throw that out there. Both of you. So I'll start with uh, predicting the market. Yeah. So in terms of trying to predict 
what cars are going to continue to appreciate, what markets are going to be strong. That's obviously a challenge, especially during uncertain economic times. I think you have to take a multifaceted approach. One, in bad times, just focus on really buying the best examples that you can. The people that are going to continue to shell out money for the best examples are going to be those that are less affected and still yeah, very comfortable financially. They're still going to want to buy. They're still going to be bidding wars for the best examples. Whereas for the cars that I'd say attract more of the, to put it yeah, mildly, the Bitcoin millionaire, you know, the Lamborghini Huracans, Lamborghini STOs of the world, which are, don't get me wrong, cool cars, but they are normally depreciating assets and more recently have been appreciating assets. Those are the things that I would really stay away from, along with higher mileage examples of cars that are more driver quality, I think that we'll see some regression back to lower price points, maybe not the price points that we were seeing just prior to the pandemic, but I do think we'll see some regression. So I place an emphasis on buying things that are really high quality examples. That's the first thing. And then also projecting out, I kind of have a 25 year rule that I look towards. So typically 25 years out from when a car was initially released, you see a pop in terms of their value due to the fact that the kids that put those cars on posters or played with them in video games now as we get to that era tend to have the money to start to buy those cars. So I'm looking at things that are you know, about 25 years old, 550 Marinellos, you know, that Ferrari uh, that really hit the States in about 97 that is a perfect example of a car that's really taken off recently, one, due to the increase in price overall, but also due to the fact that the kids that thought that's a cool car, they can now afford those. So we've seen those cars really come into the market strong over the last couple of years. And I do think that part of it is due to the fact that you have the children of yesteryear that can now afford those cars and go, hey, I want to be able to own my dream car from my childhood. So those are two primary factors that I look towards um, in terms of purchasing cars. And the old yeah, adage of yeah, tough times are opportunities to make fortunes. If you can really play your cards right, buy great collector cars from stable brands, Ferrari, Porsche, etc., I think those cars will do better and continue to appreciate or at the very least hold in a steadier market than some of the others that we're going to see a drop off just due to these astronomically high values that we've seen over the past year. So uh, speaking of selling cars, I, I was perusing your Instagram page and I couldn't help but notice a, a blue Lamborghini Urus, the gorgeous SUV, which is not a manual transmission. So <laughs> what ha what happened there? Uh, is is that yeah. uh, an exception to stray away from? It, it was an exception. Uh, and that brings a great segue to Chris's earlier questions well around consignments. Uh, that car belonged to a <clears throat> good friend and client of mine. And I was just doing him a, a favor as he was getting ready to take another car in. I was just trying to assist him on selling that. But no, that is not a car that is bread and butter for me. <laughs> but if sure. you're a good friend or a good client, then happy to help out if 
need be. But yes, he did a, a great job with that car. And when he purchased it, it, it was a beautiful uh, blue Cepheus Urus. And uh, he has great, great taste in cars and, and privileged to call him a good friend as well. Gotcha. Uh, one question that I had for you, given where we're at today with manufacturers and you know people's desires, what's your take on the the singers and the Gunther works of the world that are doing these resto mods and where those fit into not only the the popular culture but the market as a whole? Give us your take on on some of those things. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of both what Singer and Gunther Works are doing. Obviously, Singer's a little bit more established, become a household name, I think, within some of the more upper echelon tiers of collectors. Not to say that Gunther Works clients aren't you know, in that same level. I just think that uh, you know the Singers have made their way into some of the best collections in the world, and Gunther Works is definitely on that track. Very different design takes in terms of you know, the resto mod Porsche world between Singer and Gunther works. I'm kicking myself for not buying a couple Singers about a year ago. I just wasn't as familiar with the market in terms of what they were transacting for behind closed doors. And then some have made their way to public market and, and brought very strong numbers. Uh, big fan of, uh, I believe it was the Greenwich Commission that Singer did and sold on P-Car Market. Uh, shout out to, to those guys who do a tremendous job. And, and got a very nice result on that commission. But I'm a big fan. I love to have some uh, in terms of inventory or one day when I can afford it personally in my collection, like what they did with the, the new singer that they released in terms of the turbo platform going away from the naturally aspirated four liters yeah. that they've been doing. <clears throat> and Gunther works, I mean, yeah, off the 993, which is one of my favorite errors of Porsche, just think the lines are phenomenal my, and that is just a resto mod track weapon yeah i i absolutely mm -hmm. love it uh, i've seen a number of their commissions in person and i'm just blown away by what they're doing so uh yeah it's wild huge fan yeah nice and, and so uh there's a new group in town called auto uh car club and they have a, a few different aspects of their business are you familiar? Are you a member? Have you been to the facility? Uh, tell us tell us about Auto. Yes, so I'm not currently a member, but probably will join some point in time. It's a great group of people that belong there. Eli has done a phenomenal job building out that facility from the way that they've organized storage uh, for the cars to the artwork to just the overall layout. He yeah, did a, a phenomenal job uh, renovating that building and bringing auto to light. So my hat goes off to what they've done with their operation. Yeah, it's a really cool shot. Uh, I love it. Chris? Yeah, so I did, uh, Michael, I've got a quick question before we pivot into kind of a, a, a little bit of a different topic. I feel like we have to ask this question because it's so fitting. What what would be, and I have to imagine the answer would probably change over time, but when you look at right now what your what your grail car would be and then do you anticipate that kind of shifting or moving over time? That is a great question, Chris. For the longest time, it was a Ferrari 250 GTO, but you know, that's been surpassed now with the uh, recent sale of uh, a yeah, Mercedes uh, old 300 SLR that was sold, one of the ones that they had on 
their personal museum collection. The 250 GTO is historically the most expensive car in the world. And I don't want to say that that is why I loved it, but I think there was an element when I was a child, I was so taken aback by the prices that those fetched. And I love the lines of the car. I think it's a beautiful car. Um, but I don't know that that would now be my absolute grail car, just from the standpoint of having gotten the opportunity to be behind the wheel of some of these grail type cars, I realized that there's something to be said for a car that you can really drive that's a little bit more modern and has some of the performance. Not to say, I mean, the 250 GTO, not having driven one, but from talking to people who do own or have extensive seat time behind them, great driving car. It really is fast, and especially for that era of early 1960s. But I think for me, in terms of what I would most enjoy driving, that's going to be a little bit different. I would love to get my hands on a Carrera GT that has some miles that I can feel guilt-free about racking up the miles and taking on some rallies and some, you know, just drives and not feel terrible. So something in like 15 to 20,000 mile range, because those cars are really robust, would be perfect. And I think that would be probably my holy grail driver. Something that I'm going to stare at as an art piece that's a little bit harder. Still might be a 250 GTO, might be a 250 uh, SWB or a 275 uh, GTB C. I love the lines of all those cars. Um, the other kind of the, the modern grail uh, car that I do gravitate towards that's about to go into production is the Daytomaso P72. That is a grail car and uh, there will be one coming to Scottsdale. I won't give too much away, but one of those will be coming here uh, probably late 2023. So I'll keep you guys posted on that, but that is an absolute, in terms (laughs) of modern design with a throwback to 1960s Le Mans style race cars, that that is an absolute rail of mine as well. Yeah, very, very uh, interesting design. And it's definitely going to be it. It has, I think, uh, a little bit of a feel of a uh, Pagani in a sense, especially the interior, mm-hmm. the way they designed it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's going to be an incredible car. I would say I for myself, at least I've always had an obsession with the original McLaren F1. I think it's one of the most unique and special cars ever created. And just that that center seat drive manual transmission, incredibly fast, lightning fast for its time, fastest car Mm -hmm. in the world when it was created. It's just, I I think that'll definitely go down as maybe the top two or three cars ever created. So I I would love to get my hands on one of those. It'll probably be impossible, but uh, I'll still (laughs) attempt it (laughs) at some point. I'm with you. I I, I totally agree only in and i'm with you that i would say is my ultimate modern classic grail car the only reason i didn't throw it on there is just talking to some people that own them and and granted i still i'm with you i would love for two of those to come one for you one for me one day uh, to the valley but (laughs) the way that i can put it is the driving experience from what i've heard and especially even like on track i know a guy i was out at an event last year and he had his career gt and he had his f1 uh with the hdk high downforce kit 
on the track at Laguna Seca. And I was just talking to him in terms of the, the dynamics. And he goes, yeah, the McLaren F1 is cool, but the Carrera GT, just from a driving standpoint, is a lot better, more enjoyable car to drive. And that honestly yeah. was like meeting your hero and being slightly disappointed. Now, granted, I've never driven an <laughs> F1, so this is just conjecture from someone who has a lot of miles sure. under his belt in both cars. Uh, I was a little saddened to hear that, but don't get me wrong. I would kill, especially for an LM spec McLaren F1. I'm right there with you, Eric. That is a great choice. Yep. Just got to make a little more money then, then we'll, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no I'm with you. So my, uh, my, my Lamborghini pick for the Urus is, uh, doesn't look very good after that, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so Michael, when we look at, uh, when we're looking at your clientele and a lot of the things that we that we talk about on on this channel have to do around business and our hobbies and what we enjoy and two of those happen to be two things that i'm assuming would kind of tie into very much so what your clientele would enjoy as well too and those are watches and wine and so would you consider yourself a wine guy or a watch guy I, i'm a both guy um i know enough to be dangerous about both but definitely not expert in terms of the knowledge that some of these gentlemen and, and ladies that I'm surrounded with definitely have, but uh, yeah, huge, huge fan of watches and big fan of wine as well. So let's, let's go to the, a similar question. What's your, uh, what's your watch preference in terms of brand or uh, spec in terms of the type of watch within a brand or what's your, what's your grail right now if you don't have it? Oh, what is a grail watch for me? Um, so I hope Rolex isn't listening to this uh, because I, I like Rolex as a brand. And ironically, I'm actually I'm wearing a uh, Panda Dial Daytona right now. Uh, but I, outside of the, the Daytona line of watches, I'm not the biggest Rolex guy. I really like Daytonas. Um, I'm wearing the, the ceramic bezel Panda Dial uh right now but i like actually a lot of the um vintage daytona so going back to like the zenith daytona um that you know that was their movement they put in um prior to going in-house and in early 2000s with their their own movement but i like the zenith daytona a lot and then going back to really a grail would be like a paul newman uh, Daytona. I mean, that's just such a cool watch. I like some of the pre-Daytonas as well um, in terms of yeah, Rolex chronographs. Um, I, in terms of Grail watches, I mean, I, I have a respect for a lot of different Haute Horology uh, watchmakers, so to speak. I mean, like I respect Richard Mille. It's a little bit flashy for my taste. I'm more of an under the radar kind of guy. So I would say yeah, I'm really into Audemars right now. I'm trying to establish a relationship with uh, the Audemars boutique because that is you know, a brand that I love and would love to, to buy more of. Um, I'm you know, working towards you know, relationships, hopefully with Vacheron. I love the overseas and a lot of the other uh, watches that Vacheron produces. Uh, I just, I like classic designs. I like things that are timeless. Um, so for me, it's, it's all about, again, something that is maybe more of a watch guys watch rather than something that everyone knows and yeah, is you're wearing to be seen. I'm 
more of stainless steel over precious metals. Uh, again, you know, grail watches. I, I think I still have to go with Patek. I love, I mean, there's, there's so many Patek Philippe's that I absolutely love in terms of a daily wear watch. Um, I love some of the Aquanauts and Nautiluses. I mean, sure. I, anyone could say, yeah, I'd love a Tiffany Nautilus right now, but I'm not going to even have delusions of grandeur in terms of something like that. I'd be <laughs> really happy with, yeah, pretty much any Nautilus or, um, Aquanaut right now. So I'd say something in that family be, be my grail at the moment, but, uh, I'm not at that level yet. Maybe one day. What about you guys? What do you, what do you have your eyes on or what are in your collections and are absolute grails for you? Eric, go for it. <laughs> well, you're touching on one, I think, Chris. I, I'm the, a big... Go ahead. Uh, so, yeah, I guess in mine, at least, uh, Eric and I both have, I've got a sub. Um, I'm working to get a, uh, to, the, to get the green face Kermit right now, but Ooh, I think grail is probably a 6241 or... The six two six three, the Newman, Paul, uh, mm-hmm. the Paul Newman Daytona is. It's probably mine as well too. That's, I don't think you can be that. It's one of the just most perfect examples of a of a watch in my opinion. So that's, but uh, that Panda dial that you've got on, that's that's hopefully next on my list eventually. Maybe in the next year or two, that's something I'm working for. I, I like it. I mean, yeah, the watch I, market's coming think... down, so could be a good time. You're, that's right. I. I I happen to really like the look of the green aquanaut, which I, weirdly they call mm. khaki. Um, I I mean it's become a classic already because they discontinued it, but I I just think the look of it is really cool. Uh, not so much the the orange dial and the orange band, although that's become very popular as well. Um, but yeah, I'm with you. With <laughs> I'd die for a, a Tiffany stamped uh nautilus no problem uh but yeah some of their some of their dress watches uh i would i would love even some vintage pateks are are great i i really like vacheron came out i think it was last year with they did a collaboration with this uh adventurer Corey something for Mm -hmm. uh an overseas everest uh everest model and i thought those looked fantastic and they're on like a uh, a nice, they, they give you a few different options in terms of straps, but, um, I like that one a lot. And I've been looking at Vacheron's more recently and I am coming to love the brand and, uh, what they, what they've been doing. So, I mean, there, there's too many, too many to list. It's just lots. And what, one question that I'm actually curious from your perspective on, What's your take, and do you do you like slash appreciate the two beyonds of the world? Um, is it just a uh, a a gimmick, or are, are you all for seeing seeing that on a watch face? So when I first got into watches, I was probably about thirteen or fourteen. Had a family friend who has about three hundred watches in his collection, and we're not talking like all you know. Twenty, thirty thousand dollar watches. He has everything from you know really cool Rolex to Breguet to you name it. But he also has just some awesome watches that are thousand bucks or sub a thousand dollars. Even cool uh, pocket watch conversions. So in terms of you know my exposure, 
I was really interested talking to him because he knew a lot about the watchmaking process. And I discovered turbial movements and I was blown away. And I remember yeah, like 18 years old, walking into some boutiques and going, oh my gosh, is that the, you know, this, this, and this turbion and the, the people being like, okay, this is, this kid's a little weird walking in and knowing about the, you know, the exact watches that are being displayed for a few hundred thousand. And they were really uh, inviting and welcoming to me and showed me the watches. Let me put it on on wrist. And these were yeah you know, two three hundred thousand dollar timepieces. So I do have an appreciation for turbial movements. And you know, granted, when it was designed, they thought it would be a better um, keeper of time and keep more accurate time because of gravity's effect on the watch movement. And we've come to see that you know with modern watchmaking techniques, it really isn't a whole lot more accurate. But with that being said, I do appreciate the turbulent, uh, you know, movement in, in that complication. I do think they look cool. I still have a soft spot for them. Would I be shelling out, you know, some of the money required to get a turbulent? No, but if the right opportunity presented itself within the marketplace and I could steal one that I think is a pretty good store of value. One day, if I've got the cash on hand, I I could play ball. What about you, Eric? Are you a fan or are you uh, not on that train? If, I mean, if money were no object, I would be. But I, I don't know that I can justify the premium that they bring in terms of uh, a similar model without it. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's cool and I I like the look of it. And a lot of the the new APs that came out for the 50th anniversary, the Royal Oak line, there was a couple that, uh, you know, featured a Tubion, which would be awesome to have. But I, I'd be probably just as happy with the, uh, the skeletonized AP, just mm-hmm. as I would with a, a Tubion for maybe one tenth the price. So <laughs> that's, that's my general take. If, it's if the dual balanced wheel, Eric. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, normally Chris asks this, but I'll ask it today. Um, we, we named the show mind the growth for lots of different reasons, which we don't need to get into, but what we ask every guest at the end of each episode is what does the word growth mean to you? First thing that comes to mind. I think growth is something that we are doing every day from the moment we're born until the day that we die. I think growth means improvement. And in life, whether it's just being a better human being in terms of putting good out in the world or a better businessman or woman or a better son, better boyfriend, better husband, you name it. It's really just about waking up each and every day and saying, how can I get incrementally better looking yourself in the mirror and you know realizing that we're all imperfect human beings and yeah, how do I take a step forward and just be a better person than whatever it is that I'm pursuing so for me growth is just the epitome of life I think at the end of the day we grow more and more each and every day until the day that uh, we're no longer on this earth in my opinion so I love the name of the podcast and I think that yeah the focus is really yeah not to sound too cliche, but almost the epitome of life. I, I like I it. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> Makes us feel a lot better about the name of the podcast too. So yeah. uh, appreciate that, Michael. <laughs> no, absolutely, guys. I really like what you're doing and uh, like the direction that you guys have chosen. 
Awesome. Well, we appreciate it. Best of luck with everything cars related, everything life related, and uh, we'll keep growing and we hope to uh, check in on you soon. That sounds great, guys. Hey, continued success for you both in terms of the podcast and outside and looking forward to catching up with both of you and hearing more about what's going on in your day to day as well. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for joining us, Michael. Absolutely, guys.